This is Jeff Blankford. My guest today, Graham Smith, is by now familiar with Takes on the World listeners, but just to bring you up to date, he is the director of IRMEP, the Washington-based Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy, and a tireless investigator and historian of the pro-Israel lobby, which is why you'll never hear him on mainstream radio. He has authored a number of books, which should be required reading for anyone wishing to understand the enormous power wielded by Israel and its supporters in the United States. All of them can be found as well as a treasure trove of information by going to his website, irmep.org. Each spring, IRMEP co-hosts a major conference on the Israel lobby at the National Press Club with the Washington Report on the Middle East. It features major speakers from the political, academic, and journalistic world who have had the temerity to recognize the Israel lobby for what it is and speak out about it. While the media routinely ignores those conferences, the lobby still being a taboo subject, C-SPAN has covered them, and videos from these conferences can also be found on the IRMEP website. Uh, Grant's articles can be found on the antiwar.com website and always present new information that will be found nowhere else as well on his own site posts, such as the one last month that's particularly relevant in the run-up to a likely war with Iran, which presents a different view of Robert Mueller, uh, which we'll talk about today. Its title was Lesson from FBI's Niger-Uranium Forgeries File, there will be no consequences for twisting intelligence to attack Iran. Welcome once again, Grant Smith, to Takes on the World. And what was the lesson? <laughs> Thanks for having me on again, Jeff. Yeah, the lesson was absolutely that there uh, is never going to be any sort of accountability by either Congress uh, or any other body when there's a concerted attempt to take dubious intelligence or intelligence that was manufactured and use it as a justification to get the U.S. into a war. And I think what we've seen recently, uh, the whole Iran attack and then calling off the attack occurred after this article, is that it's extremely easy to rush into war um, on the idea that uh, the U.S. was attacked or an interest was attacked. And I think we could add to the lesson that there'll never be any bona fide investigation of what actually happened, um, kind of like you just mentioned in your run-up, that there wouldn't uh, be any Obama administration looking back uh, to the pretext, but only looking forward. You said this was something that was little noticed uh, except by sincere anti-war critics and also those who question Obama's bona fides, uh, that by uh, saying we're going to look forward, not backward, with Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic Party leadership going along, that was a much clever form of pardoning the former administration uh, than Gerald Gerald Ford simply pardoning Richard Nixon after he became assumed office of the president. it was this vision, visionary new president, and we have to put all the past behind it. Consequently, instead of being an international prisoner on trial, uh, George Bush paints the portraits of former presidents down in Texas and gets embraced by Michelle Obama. Wonderful country we live in, huh? <laughs> right, right. And I think um, you touched on one thing that's extremely important to maintaining this aura of res- respectability and then rehabilitating presidents like Bush. And that is that not only 
documents uh, secured in their presidential library away from prying eyes, but also some of the alleged actions toward accountability that were taken, like this FBI investigation into the Niger uranium forgeries, they remain tied up and classified uh, for years and years and years. In fact, this one uh, that uh, we're talking about today, the FBI's file, we asked for it in 2012 and just went through an extremely long administrative process with them explaining why they couldn't release this accountability action. And certainly one of the biggest findings in this file was a letter that I do not believe had ever come to light, and that was certainly John D. Rockefeller, the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee um, uh, 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 vice chairman, who basically said uh, that the investigation should, at a minimum, help allay any concerns that the U.S. Intelligence Committee or other elements of government were involved in the creation of the documents in order to support the administration's policies. Uh, that whole component of the investigation was never undertaken by Robert Mueller. Uh, what Mueller did was he received this lengthy letter, and it's the only image in the article that you reference, Lessons from FBI's Niger Uranium Forgeries File, and he took the easiest, smallest, and most limited portion of this charter to investigate, which if it had been acted upon would have been at least 50% focused on Washington, D.C. players, uh, and basically took that as a license to only focus the investigation on the U.S. Embassy in Italy and on some journalists from Panorama magazine who had brought to the attention of the embassy these Niger uranium forgeries. Uh, but he completely ignored uh, for a year and did not let the investigators on the Washington field office, which was heading up the investigation, did not let them even see the letter uh, until, uh, you know, way too much time had passed. And so I, I think one of the key findings of this whole investigation, the whole 640 pages, uh, is this idea that uh, Mueller essentially cut the investigation off at its knees uh, and didn't allow the uh, investigating special agents in the Washington field office to even conduct uh, a, a serious investigation. I, is, the letter is, is quite remarkable, the fact that even more so that it's been buried, written on March 14, 2003. Um, yeah, I actually called him. He, his name was John D. Rockefeller. Interesting that someone with that name and descendant of that family, although he, he used to he called himself J. Rockefeller, as I recall, um, and that's how he signed it, would write a letter demanding uh, attention to the these um, the fact uh, uh, that these are these are forgeries and should be investigated, right. and that this has been buried, and with no effort apparently made other than by you to get these documents, it just speaks to the state of the U.S. media when it comes to the U.S. making war on other countries that seem to be in U.S. quote unquote national interest. Maybe comment on that. Right. Well, again, we shouldn't have been the one to break this story. We shouldn't have been the only organization 
filing a Freedom of Information Act request, but it's obvious we were, because whenever there's more than one entity going after documents, uh, they'll be posted to something called the FBI's um, uh, vault, and because they know multiple people are interested in it. Well, there, there was no posting to the vault, because the Washington Post, the New York Times, no newspaper cared about digging into this investigation. And, of course, you know, the, the story is very clear. There was a visit by a uh, Iraqi official who had been posted uh, at the Vatican, of all places, to Niger. And uh, they basically talked about lifting economic sanctions, or rather economic warfare, that was being conducted by the U.S. against Iraq. But that was spun up by various intelligence agencies, mostly the Italian SISMI, into allegations that they were negotiating the purchase of uranium yellow cake, 500 tons of it, uh, which was ridiculous since Iraq already had 500 tons of uranium yellow cake and didn't need any more. But anyway, this whole story was spun up. Forgeries were added to some documents on official letterheads stolen from the Niger embassy. And basically what happened is the U.K. and the U.S. pretended that they believed that there had been an attempt to purchase uranium. And you have Dick Cheney going on about it. You have John Bolton uh, questioning, you know, why Iraq hadn't come clean. And they use this as a major pretext to scare Americans into thinking that they're going to be uh, attacked with Iraqi nuclear weapons. They used it as a pretext for war. Uh, but uh, the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Administration, after begging for the, a copy of the documents, quickly debunked it in a matter of days and told the United Nations that this was uh, a bunch of false uh, forgery documents and that it did not provide any sort of pretext. But it was too late by then. The U.S. invaded anyway. So this is a very important story, and a lot of Americans were assured, no, you don't worry. The FBI is going to investigate how this, you know, bad intelligence got into the intelligence stream. And Rockefeller, of course, is doing his job by saying this has to be a broad investigation. Uh, but again, how many days passed between uh, Rockefeller's mandate uh, for the FBI and, um, you know, the uh, investigators actually finding out what they were supposed to be investigating, 551 days. Um, and one of the things that did turn up in the Senate investigation later on was just how hard Michael Ledeen and convicted Israeli spy uh, Lawrence Franklin, who worked out of the Pentagon and various Iranian figures, were trying to pivot the U.S. into attacking Iran, uh, even while uh, the Iraq invasion was ongoing. And... I just think that this entire uh, file is so important, and the story behind it is so important right now. Um, and the fact that it's being ignored, I, I think, really does lend credence to the idea that the mainstream is never going to focus on these catalysts for war. You never hear, uh, for example, now, you mentioned some of the organizations that were against the Iran nuclear deal from the start. You neglected to mention the American Jewish Committee the Anti-Defamation League, the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, APAC, all of whom were against and lobbying as hard as they could in concert with Benjamin Netanyahu against any sort of 
joint uh, agreement to uh, work with the Iranians. Uh, none of this is allowed uh, to be commented on or provided in context. All we're getting are these extremely dubious stories about alleged attacks. Um, and, and so, you know, the fact that this story is not being juxtaposed against that is, is pretty sad commentary. The only, I think, hopeful sign that's out there is that one poll that was recently conducted shows 58% of Americans are in favor of a non-military approach to Iran, with 48% calling for diplomacy and 9% saying the U.S. shouldn't take any action. Uh, there is no broad American uh, popular support for the war uh, that's being you know, slowly inched toward uh, the kinetic war beyond the economic warfare that's already been conducted. Uh, and so there, at least there's that. But um, you know, all the lessons that uh, we learned and have been going over for these years since 2001 uh, just don't factor in. Um, my guest is Grant Smith, the director of the Institute for Research, Re- Research Middle Eastern Policy. You're not liable to hear on any other radio station, at least in this area. Uh, Grant, uh, will you bring up the name of Michael Ledeen? Uh, most Americans aren't aware of him, uh, but as I recall, he's one of the original neocons, pro-Israel neocons, very close to Israeli Mossad, as the Jewish foreign newspaper uh, gave away, actually, and reported, didn't report, but uh, had stories about back in its early years. And Ladine is based in Italy, and he has been uh, one of those neocons who has openly said that chaos in the Middle East is our goal. Other right. neocons may have said the same thing. So whereas the U.S. foreign policy has essentially been stability in the Middle East and was up until 2003. The neocon policy has been chaos, and that benefits has benefited Israel, not the United States, however you look at U.S. national interest. And I want to point out that what is neglected repeatedly when they talk about the Iraq War is that senior George Bush, his Secretary of State James Baker, and his national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft, were absolutely against the second Iraq war because it would destabilize the region. And they did not want to depose Saddam for that reason. And that has been swept under the carpet. Perhaps you comment on that. Yeah, it's uh, it's just absolutely amazing. Um, Ladine's history as uh, sort of an instigator uh, with all of these connections, including to Iran-Contra, serial fabricator, uh, Gorbanifar, Manuchar Gorbanifar, who was so involved in, in that whole scandal. Um, but here he was actively putting together meetings. Uh, he was uh, a suspect because he had connections to Panorama Magazine, which was a vehicle that uh, they were trying to place this phony dossier in. Uh, he was meeting in the region at the same time, again, accompanied by a now-convicted Israeli spy, um, and yet uh, and has all of these excellent contacts with the Pentagon, which seemed ongoing, uh, you know, Harold Road at the Pentagon, 
others, uh, excellent contacts on Capitol Hill, Newt Gingrich, um, and his material is, is taken seriously, faxed around to Paul Wolfowitz and, and the Secretary of Defense. And so even though he is, at the time that this Niger uranium forgery is going on uh, in this major European operation, and at this time he's not connected to the government, he just simply has all of this incredible, uh, unquestioned, ongoing access to, to people such as Douglas Fife, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy and others, where he's urging them on to stage an Iranian uprising through uh, someone the CIA already knew was a serial fabricator, Gorbanifar, uh, bouncing around and uh, almost no um, limits on his activities. And it's kind of a reflection of the incredible support that Ladin has had uh, from the pro-Israel um, ecosystem in the U.S. That he is considered, with his uh, pithy comments that, you know, faster please, let's have chaos across the Middle East, he's considered to be an intellectual uh, rock star among that set. Um, but if you look at the company he keeps and the actions he's, he's attempting to take, he really does he does act more like a foreign spy than he does, you know, an American uh, policy analyst or policy wonk. And it's it's frightening because there is no limit to the sort of activities that you would think would be prohibited by the Logan Act, somebody trying to set the table and actually set U.S. policy uh, with you know, not even a political appointee operating on his own on behalf of this foreign lobby and uh, in close contact with uh, all sorts of figures, uh, no limits on his activities. And that is why it seems so likely right now uh, in the current crisis that all it's going to take would be the actions of a few of these, you know, known uh, instigators to set off uh, the inevitable in the region. Speaking of potential false flag, I mean, the fact that uh, Donald Trump did not attack, I, um, as as I mentioned on my program, uh, Joe Lieberman, who is as close to the neocons as you can get, um, it was publicly in Israel uh, criticizing Trump uh, for not going forth and not only taking out that missile battery but hitting other targets. We have Sheldon Adelson who has called publicly for dropping an atomic bomb in the Iranian desert and to get Tehran's attention that they don't roll over and accept U.S. dictates to then bomb Tehran itself with a nuclear weapon. John Bolton has done the same. Uh, it was Sheldon Adelson, who the New York Times reported, pressured uh, Donald Trump to fire H.R. McMaster, who, a former general, who was not inclined to attack Iran and and is not inclined to pledge his loyalty to Israel and replace him with John Bolton, who was so unpopular on Capitol Hill that Bush had to wait until Christmas to, uh, to appoint him in a recess appointment as U.N. ambassador, where he became, according to the Israeli ambassador uh, at the time, our, the sixth man in our department. This is someone representing the United States and actually demonstrating more power as a national security advisor than anyone since Henry Kissinger. 
Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, there's also an interesting piece in Low Blog uh, called Trump has a $259 million reason to bomb Iran, and that is the amount of money that Sheldon Adelson has uh, invested in various parts of the GOP ecosystem, including the Trump, uh, to get their ear and become a major figure uh, to mold and influence policy. And, of course, you know, it, it looks a lot like a, an oligarch uh, demanding, you know, fealty from uh, a dictator. It, it, it has, all, has all a feel for what the U.S. routinely accuses uh, Vladimir Putin of doing, and yet, uh, you know, nobody is adding up the billionaire Ron Hawks, uh, whether it's Adelson, the singers, uh, Marcus, who uh, created Home Depot, the absolute tens of millions of dollars going into the current batch of think tanks, such as the Foundation of Defense of Democracies and others who have been basically created to instigate a new war and maintain U.S. military involvement across the Middle East on Israel's behalf. And they get full protection from every sector of the every sector of the media. Actually, even alternative media doesn't go into that sector of the Israel lobby the way it should. And of course, as I mentioned a number of times on the program, but you can't mention it too many times that in 2010, when Adelson who owns the largest newspaper in Israel, a free paper, uh, Israel Hayom, Israel Today. Uh, the day he opened it, he spoke to an audience, of English-speaking audience in Israel, and apologized for having worn the uniform of the U.S. Army and not Israeli Defense Forces. Now, if American, American military um, families, people serving in the U.S. military, would know that Trump's main backer was this person, Sheldon Adelson, who has said this, they'd be, have a hard time defending him. But even the Democrats won't bring that issue up. That's the power of the Israel lobby and their fear of, of losing funding uh, that they get from uh, major Jewish supporters and also provoking anti-Semitism, which is a question there'd be many people would see that as an example of disloyalty by American Jews. But the fact is Adelson sets a, becomes a poster boy for that, which most American Jews would reject out of hand if they knew about it. Yeah, it's, you know, his name should absolutely be mentioned in every story uh, having to do with Iran, since he's been such a uh, effective uh, influencer on the Trump campaign. Um, but a lot of these vehicles, again, because they're not properly reported on, because the media doesn't ever do a good job of uh, revealing who's behind them or when they were created, uh, it's difficult for anybody listening to their so-called experts to discern what's really going on. Uh, as we've talked about before, this year right now, the, the entire Israel Affinity Organization ecosystem of nonprofits uh, is at about $5.8 billion in revenue. It's a gigantic part of the so-called charitable system in this country. And uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies has really jumped to the forefront as sort of the ideological uh, factory churning out pieces about why 
Iran is so dangerous. And it, it's really, uh, it's, its whole job is really to frame Israeli issues as American issues while hiding their affinity and hiding their donors. And, you know, those, many of those donors have been exposed, uh, but their purpose is not really exposed. They have perhaps, you know, 20 million pieces of information circulating that you can find through Google. Only 228 pieces of those information talk about the Israel connection. And I think that's the result of their assessment that it, they don't want to really tip off among Americans what their real purpose really is. They want to saturate the media. They want to demand of their media allies that they simply be positioned as experts, but their funding and their purpose not be questioned. Uh, and they're getting away with it, just as some dark money vehicles, 501c4s, are kind of identity laundering entities in which you don't really know who Americans for Freedom uh, that's running ads in your community. You don't know who they are. Uh, FDD is, is really laundering its purpose. Uh, it's not telling uh, American media or people who are affected by their operations what they're really doing. And, uh, you know, whereas somebody such as Gareth Porter, who you recently had on your show, uh, has extremely low visibility, uh, he's never invited on mainstream media to talk about Iran, which is part of his expertise. Clifford May from FDD, uh, his multiple of visibility is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times that of Gareth Porter. Uh, and so experts uh, are being locked out once again. Uh, the people who know what's going on are not being allowed to present counterpoints in the run-up to the Iran war, which I believe has about a 50% chance of occurring. Um, simply not happening. And that uh, requires the assistance of the media because when you see the New York Times uh, referring, and NPR referring to Mark Leibniz, Mark Dubowitz of the Foundation of Defense of Democracies referred to it as a um, Middle East think tank. And when it holds a forum in Washington with the United Arab Emirates, with which it is very close, it gets no coverage whatsoever. Uh, nor no. does, for example, when APAC holds its national conventions every year and the major players of both parties pledge their allegiance to Israel, there is no coverage of that convention. And nor is there, for that matter, when the new Israel um, American Council, funded by Sheldon Adelson, has a forum, as, as an interview um, hosted by the Democrat Haim Saban with Nancy Pelosi and Charles Schumer, and she tells uh, Haim Saban about all these congressional chairmanships she, that she has made that are going to benefit Israel. Uh, this is what you could call for a special counsel investigation, but they're too powerful for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, they, they are awfully possible, and I you know, I hate to quote somebody who has, um, you know, not really covered the Israel lobby to the extent possible, but uh, it is true that um, you can quote none other than uh, uh, Noam Chomsky as saying that if you want to look for foreign influence in American elections, you really don't have to look much further beyond. Israel. 
he didn't have much more to say than that, but even Noam Chomsky knows at this point that it really is a matter of the lobby in coordination with the Israelis, who is a far bigger foreign influence on the United States than, say, Russia ever could hope to be. Um, but that is absolutely off the table uh, as far as the discussion point. Um, the minute an analyst brings that to the table and wants to go into the facts supporting of it, which are indisputable, the conversation at that point is pretty much over because media organizations are well aware what can happen to their advertisers, what can happen with senior management uh, when they venture into this territory, which is, of course, you know, one of the most important uh, factors in politics that you can explore. Uh, you can have a meaningful discussion about it, talking about the organizations, the money, the policy initiatives, but that uh, still, except for various peaks, if you look on Google Trends, which is a real barometer of American awareness of what's going on, uh, the whole term Israel lobby only very rarely comes up uh, as something that Americans are focusing on, whereas you know the latest uh, Iran attack, that can be a 100% saturation level search issue because Americans have been told they need to consider that to be important. The fact that there's almost no independent research by Americans of what exactly the Israel lobby is, uh, is really a result of the fact that it's not reported on. Uh, we're getting to the point where using big data, we can confirm the uh, state of near total ignorance that Americans are languishing in because they're not getting any relevant, immediate, and meaningful information to take decisions on. Uh, and the, in the few moments when they are given them by an Ocasio-Cortez or Rashida Tlaib, they are immediately aware of the incredible penalties that are being applied to those voices and the fact that uh, there will be severe consequences for anybody else who who raises the issue, and and this is this this really diffuses out into social media, where getting into these discussions can uh, really impact people negatively, and so they tend to shy away from them. But uh, it's becoming increasingly visible the bad job that the media is doing uh, in always shying away from these discussions uh, to the point of self-parody. Uh, that uh, it's something you can quantify. Well said. This is a major problem because they require having a thumb on the media to keep all this happening and not being reported, and it has succeeded. And it, it actually was some much, much better maybe 30 years ago uh, when there was reporting, and particularly cartoons in the U.S. media when Israel invaded Lebanon during the first intifada were extremely critical of Israel that could not be published today. In fact, the New York Times published a cartoon that, that the supporters of Israel did not like, showing um, Trump as a blind man being led by a dachshund with the face of Netanyahu as a seeing eye dog, and that was considered anti-Semitic. As a result, New York Times will no longer run cartoons. Uh, it's a, it, right. uh, while I still have you, Grant, there's one thing we need to talk about, and that's because Mr. Trump, President Trump, is always talking about trade. What's good for America is America, and America first is to talk about uh, the Israeli-American Free Trade Agreement, uh, which you have written about. And 
was the first free trade agreement and how that has turned out for the United States. Sure. Back in 1984, uh, U.S. industry was told that there would be a free trade agreement with Israel. Uh, the associations and industry groups immediately questioned it, saying, why don't we do it with a larger market that could have a positive impact? Uh, but they were basically uh, told, no, you really need to register any opposition with the International Trade uh, Commission, and they did so promptly to have all of their proprietary information stolen by the Israeli government at APAC, which used it against them to pass the trade deal in 1985. The bottom line is that since 1985, uh, this has become the worst bilateral trade agreement in terms of cumulative inflation-adjusted deficit. It's at $182.25 billion as of 2018, uh, only ahead of the South Korea free trade agreement, which is receiving major focus by the Trump administration. Uh, the Trump administration initially said that they were interested in uh, leveling the trading uh, playing field with all of these FTAs that are, as they say, quote, broken and bad, unquote. But after initially directing the U.S. Department of Agriculture to look into why U.S. products were locked out of the Israeli market while Israeli products could enter the U.S. market, they basically folded their hands and have pursued no further pressure on Israel to become an open market and actually abide by the even extremely favorable terms that they have under this agreement. Uh, so uh, this is a real contradiction in their trade policy. They initially appeared to be serious about uh, at least being consistent, but they're not being consistent. Um, and so we put out a report called U.S. Free Trade Agreement Damage Assessment, and it was released on the anniversary of the FBI's initiating an investigation into the espionage that occurred in the context of this agreement. So I uh, recommend that article. That's a, that is on your website, as are a number of articles, as well as books that Grant has written. The last one was called Big Israel, about the, what makes up the Israel lobby. Indispensable information you will not find absolutely anywhere else. And I do recommend go to the IRMEP, IRMEP.org, get a cup of coffee, sit back and read and find out information you simply won't get because it is denied uh, coverage by the U.S. media across the board, almost with, with few exceptions. This is one radio program, one radio station that tries to bring you something that you need to hear, Americans need to hear. I'm glad to have... Grant, having you as our guest today. I want to thank you so much. The website again, www.irmep.org, is a wealth of information on that site that will blow your mind. Again, Grant, thanks for being our guest today. I look forward to doing it again. Keep up the great work. Thanks. I can't thank you enough, Jeff. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been Jeff Blankford. Thanks for listening.